As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. He is definitive on Amazon, of course, the trophy book right now, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, The Invention of a Global Empire. He joins us from Davos, the meetings of the World Economic Forum. Uh, Brad, thrilled to have you with Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. Let me cut to the chase. I see AI at Microsoft is countable revenue, Copilot, Azure, all the rest of it. And I see a lot of other AI is smoke and mirrors. How do you parse between legitimate artificial intelligence future and the makeup, the fantasy, the comedy of it. How do you parse? Oh boy, well, uh, thanks Tom for having me. Hi Damien. Um, look, I've, I've been covering Silicon Valley long enough that I've seen this story play out before. We're at the beginning of a hype cycle. Um, there will be disappointment. A lot of, you know, the visions of AGI, uh, computers yeah. that reason, that change our world, they seem far-fetched. You know, they're, they're, we talk about a trough of disillusionment that will happen. But you're right that there, you know, that there are real revenues, real benefits. Yesterday, Microsoft announced that it was bringing its OpenAI-powered co-pilot to the office suite. Yes, so, yeah. You know, $20 a month, uh, making it available yeah, to small well, I, businesses and individual users. That's real. Yeah, Brad, I signed up last night. It's going to be great. Can you see me, Damien? Can you see me doing artificial intelligence? Get out of the, the way. Mm -hmm. Brad, if I look at this, can you say that the Magnificent Seven, they seem to be away from the hype. How is the Magnificent Seven going to create revenue and cash flow out of AI? Yeah, I mean they're the best position because they're 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 selling the picks and shovels to uh, all the miners. You know, this is um, Alphabet and and Amazon and and uh, Microsoft running the world's most powerful cloud services and making basically AI available as a service to every university and startup and consumer goods company that, you know, wants to use these tools for a variety. It's, it could be R&D, could be customer service. So, you know, even even though that'll be a work in progress, they, the revenues will be real. My question for Santiago Tom, mm. by the way, yesterday was, you know, do you control any of this? You're, you're investors in open AI. You don't even have a board seat. Mm -hmm. You're like in the back of the bus without a seatbelt. And it's got such peculiar governance. Well, and he said, 
you know, it's fine. We just want stability. So I don't know if I quite believe it. I think they're outsourcing a, a key competency, but they're in the catbird seat, the driver's seat, because they did make that investment. I'm sure the Amazons and the Googles of the world wish that they hadn't uh, passed up the open AI opportunity when they had the chance. Well, Brad, I appreciate you answering those two questions from that artificial personification of Tom Keen. That wasn't really Tom Keen answering those mm-hmm. questions. And my question for you is talk to me about deep fake videos X, these platforms, what's to stop OpenAI and ChatGPT and all this artificial nonsense from muddying the waters ahead of the election? Yeah, well, it's funny because it is really the talk of the conference that you've got national elections in some 77 countries around the world. Half the world's population could head to the polls at the same time as this enormously powerful technology is made available to people and what's to stop it from being misused i know this is going to carry a lot of water with our listeners but you know they are raising their right hand and putting their left hand over their hearts and saying we're not going to allow our technology to be abused I mean, brad do they really now, understand the risks i mean do, i mean do, do, they, do i think they do they do i think they do because we've all seen this movie before and meta its reputation went through the meat grinder because social media was perverted. You know, yesterday, it's no surprise that Sam Altman's here. He spent time with us at the Bloomberg House. And before our interview, they posted um, a statement on their blog on their election policy and said that chat GPT cannot be used for any uh, political campaign. And they said that uh, images generated by Dali, right. their, Im- their image maker, will carry a cryptographic watermark to show the provenance and and but you know my and my question for Sam was like these are great intentions. Uh, you've got the weight of of all the black hat developers trying to break this right. stuff. How do you enforce it? Where Meta and Google and TikTok have all kind of let failed it with the genie out of the bottle. Right. And um, he said, you know, they're aware of the risks. So I, I do think it's going to be a rocky year with some of these elections and we're going to see this technology abused. Right, Brad. And I'm sure that no one can forge those crypto watermarks. I have one last question. I mean, my colleague, Tim Craighead from BI is actually in Davos listening to Altman. And he said, I mean, you know, Altman obviously spoke and he was talking about how AI will make people more productive. Talk to us a little bit about that narrative. The great worry is that when this technology is fully implemented, that there will be a great dislocation um, of workers, low-level level programmers, customer service agents, you know, in en mass replacement along with productivity. And it will worsen the digital divide, and you'll have countries that are particularly hard hit, and it could lead to further political alienation and, or, you know, maybe more autocratic governments, a real nightmare scenario. So, you know, that's the worry. And I think the stewards of this technology, you know, Davos is the land of performative optimism. I, I kind of like to joke. And so, yeah. of course, they're saying that it's going to increase productivity and we're all going to lead better lives working less. Um, you know, maybe Tom will get to sleep in one <laughs> one morning when uh, AI kind of takes over. But I, I don't know. I mean, the you know, the I, I think it will make people more productive, but I think it, it might replace some jobs as well. One more, more question. I think it's what everyone knows with your, your ownership of uh, Amazon and and all you've done with Amazon Unbound. They've gone round trip, massive post-pandemic collapse. They've come back. Is the next Amazon, Josie's Amazon, is it going to make total return like we, we've known over the last decade? Excuse me. So you're asking me about the stock price? I mean, yeah. it's it's... Yeah, I mean, look, if if I could predict it, I'd probably be in a different line of work. I mean, I do think 
you know, Andy Jassy is now a couple years into his tenure. He has, pa- and by the way, he's here at Davos. He has pared back some of the excesses of of the late stage Bezos. Uh, um, they, we just saw another round of layoffs. This is becoming yeah. a very lean yeah. and efficient company as he bets on the core competencies, which is AWS and the Amazon marketplace yeah. empowering third party sellers. They've got their work cut out for them, but I do think there's a bit okay. of mo- momentum there. Brad Stone from the meetings of the World Economic Forum. I can't say enough about his new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, The Invention of a Global Empire. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Joining us now, the tech pinata of 2024, <laughs> Daniel Ives joins us from Wedbush. He's been traveling CES Las Vegas, joining us today from Warsaw, Poland. Uh, Dan, what'd you learn at Las Vegas at CES? Don't give me the mumbo jumbo. What was the backstory in Las Vegas? I thought it's about AI, just how mainstream the technology is getting. I mean, Tom, my opinion, the biggest CES in the last 25 years, it shows this AI revolution. It's not hype, it's real, it's on the doorstep. I want you to talk Dan Ives, and this is what you, what you don't see, folks, is Dan Ives is doing the media, blah, 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 buy this, Apple, the, the gloom crew hates him, but beneath it is careful financial work. Can you quantify what the new announcement of AI over to Microsoft 365, like, can you add up the impact of that to a giant company like Microsoft? It's when you put it together, this is going to be 800 billion to a trillion of incremental value to the Microsoft story. I mean, it, they are leading the AI revolution with Nadella and Redmond, along with the godfather of AI, Jensen, NVIDIA. Tom, I think the monetization that's happening at Microsoft is still so underappreciated in terms of what we're seeing in the field. Dan, they're asking for more money. I mean, they're asking for more computing power, more hardware, more technology. They say this is not just big. It is massive. It is huge. Do you agree with that? I think it's the biggest transformational tech we've seen since the start of the Internet. And that's why enterprises, they're lining up. Conversion could be 60, 70 percent. And that's why, as Tom's talking about, the, the doomsayers again, 
you know, obviously negative unpack. I think this earnings season turns that around because the real monetization of AI is here. It starts from the Dell and Microsoft. And Dan, I mean, the real, the real, I mean, you, you, you just said it right there. Don't you need access to data, to unique data sets in order to basically make the AI go? And so when I think of Amazon, okay, fine, they've got access to consumer data. I think of Microsoft, it's, it's everything else, you know, people on their computer. And talk to us about these companies and the data they have access to and how that's going to differentiate them in the environment you're talking about. I mean, it's a new age. And that's why when you look at the, the cloud, the big hyperscale players, Microsoft, of course, Amazon, Google, and others, they've had the data sets, but they haven't had the tools that they can monetize and make intelligence out of that. That's yeah. why the use cases are exploding. That's why this AI revolution right now, I believe it fuels this new tech bull market. Uh, Dan Ives, uh, February 2nd, we're gonna get Apple earnings. It's a ballet. I actually sit down with a beverage of my choice, uh, folks, at the home computer after the surveillance nap. And what's a joy here is they release, like other firms, a press release that's clear and in English. Dan Ives, what are we going to see in the treatment of the four accounting statements from Apple, 4 p.m. February 2nd? Yeah, look, that's the drum roll, right? And I think when Cupertino comes out, the big thing is going to be services. I, we are looking at team type of growth for services, and that's key that could really be incrementally. We view that as a 1.5 to 1.6 trillion services. The margins double that of hardware. Obviously, all focus on iPhone units, despite obviously many yelling fire in a crowd theater. I actually think it was a pretty strong iPhone unit number. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Well I'm going to get upset China here. Tracker. You know, Dan knows the drill. Damien, pick it up here. Okay. But I'm sitting there with a beverage in my left hand looking at the accounting statement and the media is not readjusting the mm -hmm. currency iphone sales as mr yep. ive says were pretty darn good and then you had to figure in dollar currency adjustments whoa doom and gloom <laughs> i mean ives is a hundred percent right about this. the iphone is now 20 percent of the global market tom i mean it just passed samsung as the world's top phone maker in the full year 2023 but i mean dan here's my question what companies are best positioned to profit from what you're talking about here? I mean, is it the chip makers? I mean, what sort of hardware companies? Is it software? I mean, what are you seeing? I think it's software and chips. I, when you look at names like Microsoft, oh, the Magnificent Seven, you look at Microsoft, Google, Amazon, then yeah. you look at some of these names like MongoDB, Salesforce.com, yeah. and of course, AMD with Lisa, Sue, and Chips. This is the start of this tidal wave, a trillion dollars of incremental spend next decade. That's how this is all going to play out, software and chips leading it. You know, I got one more for you. I mean, if you're a new company with, you know, and you're in the AI boom and, you know, you've got the talent, and you know, you're competing, where do you want to be located? Do you want to be on the West Coast? Do you still want to be in Palo Alto? I want to be based uh, in a 512 area at Austin, <laughs> Texas. Oh, really? And that's, Love and Austin. that, look, and that's what, that's 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 a Silicon Valley 2.0. You're seeing that boom more and more for AI engineers, and I think that's really started the new age that we're seeing from an AI perspective. Okay, well, well help our our international audience. What has Michael Dell invented down in Austin? To the two of you, Damien, when you think five one uh, two, South what do you Congress. Think about I think that? of South Congress. I think of barbecue. I mean, I think of Austin, Texas. I mean, that is the Los Angeles. I, of the I think South. of Joe Weisenthal's band myself. I think they're you know outstanding. <laughs> Dan Ives, what's special about Austin, Texas? I mean, there's a lot of things special about Austin, Texas, but the engineering talent. Right. 
that that's being created there, obviously outside the University of Texas, right. is is really unprecedented. It's one of the you know more and more tech companies from Google to of course Tesla to Meta right. moving down there, and it, it's really becoming a, a real go to destination for tech leaving uh, the 415, going to the 512. Dan Eyes worldwide on Bloomberg Surveillance. And it's time now to make some news. You got a $250 price target on Apple. Can we lift that up today, Mr. Eyes? <laughs> I mean, look, Tom, I mean, you've talked the bull case. This will be a $4 trillion mark cap, we believe, by the end of this year. And remember, AI, there's zero dollars given for AI in Apple's valuation. That's why this is it. Get that popcorn ready in the Kean household when they come out with that AI announcement right. in June. From Warsaw, Poland, a trooper to be with us uh, in his travels. Dan Eyes of Wedbush, of course, outstanding work by him at it, CES. He's with Wedbush Securities, optimistic on Apple and computers. Right now, we're going to talk about the pulse of, of, of the Christmas holiday, the season that we saw. There's just no one better to do with this than Dana at, at Telsey. With all of her heritage at this corner of Fifth Avenue and 57th Street, her family's heritage, and she's done it in securities analysis for a year. At Dana, you were right. The gloom crew was wrong. What did the people of caution get wrong about Retail America into the end of the year? I think overall, and Tom, thank you so much for having me. I think overall, one of the key things that was the difference is we had Christmas that was later this year. So people had more time in order to procrastinate. And so really everything was driven around the event days, whether it was the Black Friday weekend or then that week leading up to Christmas. It's what made the difference. It's not that holiday sales were so great, but goods sold at full price, inventory levels yeah. were lean. And sales came in in line with expectations for the most part. And that's the Dana Telsey microeconomics or uh, uh, Damien Sassauer, what she just said there, goods sold at full price was to me yeah. my observation on it. You know, I'm curious, Dan, I'm curious to hear, we got some China data overnight, right? I know I just went pivoting away here, but I mean, wow, that economy is sluggish. And I think a lot of the big luxury goods, LVMH, carrying Hermes, I mean, they were off pretty big overnight in Europe. Talk to us a little bit about what that GDP figure means to you. What it means to me, especially for luxury, and I spoke last week to the CEOs of Neiman Marcus and Sachs, and they all talked about the slowing and more challenging luxury goods environment. Look at Burberry's numbers, which yep. were just released at the end of the week last week. It talked about the slowdown. And in Europe, the local slowdown spending, and you're still not seeing the Chinese come over and spend, whether in Europe or in the U.S., anywhere near what we had pre-pandemic. We're going to get next week LVMH, and I think all eyes are going to be on what they say about the deceleration globally. Is there a Tiffany experiment working out? For those of you uh, internationally, we have two blocks away from us, really across the street from where Dana grew up. Tiffany's with $100 million or so investment by the Arnaud family. Has that experiment been successful for LVMH? It has. Not only has it been successful, but also they garnered profitability much quicker, frankly, right. than, than when it was a public company. And the way they've done right. it, they modernized the store, they've modernized the products, they've brought in influencers, celebrities that appeal to a younger consumer. Think about it. You're talking about engagement jewelry. When do people get engaged? 20s and 30s. 
want to have a right. store to cater to that demographic. If you're just joining us on Bloomberg Surveillance, Dana Telsey, the Telsey Advisory Group, she and Joe Feldman with great work across all of, of retail. And I, I know Damien, Mrs. Sassauer called me up. She <laughs> said, you got to ask about the Anivair leather knit red sole <laughs> Christian Labouton boots, $1,595. It's a way to go through the snow drifts yeah, no, on the not, ice in New York City. I'm not worried about the man with Mrs. Sassauer out there. But what I will say, and Dana, this is my question for you, you know, El Nino, right? Input costs, margins, you know, talk to me about the impact of El Nino on cotton prices on some of these things. I mean, do you see that kind of trickling through to the bottom line? It does. I mean, one of the things, keep in mind, all the freight expenses and the tailwinds that companies got from fr lower freight costs in 2023, apparel, it's going to benefit with lower cotton costs in 2024, but maybe not to the same magnitude we're still going to need some level of sales leverage. And there are two drivers in 2024. It's about innovation and it's about value. You have those two elements and you'll have a formula to drive sales growth. So talk to us also, I mean, on the input side, I mean, what are you thinking here? I mean, gas prices are now ticking up. Obviously, we didn't see much evidence of that in the retail sales print. But, you know, how does this really impact some of these, you know, these large luxury goods uh, companies? I mean, do you see any impact there? I don't, For certainly for raw materials cost increases, luxury goods companies have the power, frankly, yeah. of being able to raise price. You're certainly seeing Chanel do it, trying to reach what Hermes is doing, but all the others, you're not seeing price increases like you had, and they're right. managing their inventory much more carefully. I gotta go, I yeah, I gotta, I gotta go away from luxury, Dana Telsey. Tell me about your single best buy when you and Joe Feldman get to work. Where's the, <laughs> the value? Is it in big box? Is it in middle of uh, the road? Or is it in lux? I think overall, definitely, I think when the weakness in luxury, like any weakness in LVMH, I think that's an opportunity. But really, it continues to be about off price and discount, mm. given what you've seen in the right. moderation in consumer spend, the I mean, low TJX. I mean, Hermes, I mean, I guess leading the way is being least affected. Why are they trading at a multiple of 47 times earnings? Because frankly, when you think about something like Hermes, there is so far there is no level of supply where the demand doesn't exceed right. the supply. Mrs. Sassar is yeah. terrific. Mrs. I don't mean to interrupt, but Mrs. Sassar is on the phone. What's the question? Mrs. She only Sassar? shops at the Ponte Vecchio in Florence, Tom. Now, I mean, you know, I was just in Europe, and I have to say, I mean, there was a lot of foot track in some traffic in some of these places. And you know, you talk about Hugo Boss, you know, who had disappointing operating profits. I mean, Burberry, you mentioned them. I think you know things seem to be turning around here in Europe. That's good to hear. I, I think <laughs> yeah. that would help all the luxury. Uh, Lisa Mateo's here as well. She wants to ask a question. Lisa Mateo, a question here for Dana Telsey to get your retail day started. Ooh, all right. Uh, what is the hottest? What should I be looking for as far as you hear these um, talks about um, selling back those fashionable high-end pocketbooks? If I just happen to have one at home, <laughs> what's the remarket value of something like that? Um, it depends if it's an Hermes bag, whatever market value you walked it out of the store of or tried to bring it to someone to sell, it's higher. And for some, I've heard it's at least 10% higher even the day it walks out the door. What's a, it holds its value. What's the greatest brand description to Lisa Mateo's brilliant question? Which is, <laughs> which is the bag Lisa wants to unload this morning? You want a higher price? A Birkin or a Kelly is your bag that you're going to get a higher price. Dana Telsey, thank you. So give me a single Best Buy, please. I need a name here. Give me a single Best go, Buy. Go, go to TJX. 
Ooh. It's me. It's the winner for 24. There you Great. Go. And they have the Kelly bag as well. Dana Telsey, thank you, thank you, thank you uh, so much on The Real Retail uh, America. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Now joining us to piece it together is Lizanne Saunders. Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. She's in charge of their Led Zeppelin division. <laughs> We're thrilled that she could join uh, today. Lizanne, I, I, I look at the market and I, I need a whole lot of love here. And to me, the whole lot of love is going to come from $6 trillion in money market funds. How much of that is going to go at Schwab over to the equity market? Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily count on a lot of it. I, I, I don't think that that should be seen as money that is poised to jump into the equity market. I think a lot of that is stickier money that might have been in other places, including traditional deposits, um, or in riskier places in order to pick up income that now can be in the safety. And also, yes, $6 trillion is a record, but we're nowhere near a record as a share of total stock market capitalization. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look to the 1990s to see a period where you consistently saw increases in the amount of money in money market funds commensurate with the increase in the right. stock market, the, the drivers being different. So I don't view that as some sort of moment in time source of additional right. funds that would flow into equities. I, right now I'm confused because I get a stream of thought that people are cautious, nervous, and I get another stream of thought that everybody, including Damien Sassar's au pair, is in the market. Which is it? With Schwab, is there an enthusiasm by your clients for equities? I, I think there's cautious optimism. I wouldn't uh, consider it overt enthusiasm. In fact, if you look at um, attitudinal measures of investor sentiment more yeah. broadly than, than just Schwab, although at $7 trillion, we're a pretty big <laughs> slice of the uh, the retail investing yeah. universe. But if you look at attitudinal measures like AAII, right. those are purely attitudinal. It's survey-based. And that's jumped around quite a bit. And it's just, right. it, there tends to be more of a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on in the market moment in time. But even within right. that survey, you get the 
equity exposure. And at times where you've seen bearishness really pick up fairly quickly, it, it's not met with right. a similar move down in equity exposure. So I think when looking at sentiment, you've got to look at the marriage between the attitudinal side and the behavioral side. Interesting. And of course, in the nine o'clock hour here, Wall Street time, Damien Sassar <laughs> has been medicated. The Tang Mimosas have clicked in. Damien, no questions to Lizanne on Indonesia. Okay, I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to channel Robert Thank Plant you, and Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, not Lizanne, but I. I'm going to channel um, Pink Floyd. I'm going to channel Roger Waters here. Are the markets comfortably numb to the concept of a Fed cut in March? I mean, let's be clear. I mean, like, this is unbelievable that, you know, the markets are priced that way. Yet, you know, it seems to be coming fast, becoming consensus. What are your thoughts on that? So we, we have seen um, a, a bit of a shift, uh, particularly with, with today's retail sales report. So a week ago, if you look at probabilities in terms of the Fed Fund's future market of what's going to happen at the March FOMC meeting, you were up at around 65% probability. I think that's down to, I don't know, 57 or 58% now, and it's been kind of a moving target. So I think the market may slowly be adjusting to what, mm. frankly, most Fed speakers have been trying, the message they've been trying to impart is, you know, whoa, <laughs> all else equal, given what we know now, it is probably not a backdrop supportive of not just starting as soon as March, but the Fed providing, you know, six rate cuts this year. I, I think that disconnect still exists. It's just not as wide as it was even a week ago. So then, Lizanne, a backup in yields means, I guess, from the equity perspective, you'd want to get a little bit more defensive. What areas of the market would you go to to protect uh, to protect in this type of environment? I mean, you would think classic defensive sectors like you know utilities. I mean, I mean, look at where valuations are there. I mean, what what works in your portfolio? Well, so there are the classic defensive sectors like utilities. Then there's this era's defensive sectors, yes. which incorporates the what I call the growth trio of telecommunication services, consumer discretionary, of course, housing, all of the magnificent seven, and really all the way back to the early part of the pandemic. That's been this era's defensive. Uh, type names. And that's because of strength of balance sheet. They don't have to rely on on funding in the, the traditional banking system or even in the, the, the capital markets. So defensive is just a descriptor. It's not some quality. predetermined type. And it is quality. And, you know, it's specific to the beginning of your question with this direct relationship in yields. I mean, the peak in yields, um, it gave us the big move up from late July, to, I mean, from late October until the end of the year. But then we saw that uh, bottom in yields. And that meant we saw the market rollover, particularly small caps. And right. one of the things we've been saying, especially with small caps, is you know, there's money that's wants to find ideas down the cap spectrum, but do not sacrifice quality, particularly when you go down the cap spectrum. So you want to still have that strength of balance sheet in interest coverage, very importantly, especially as yields tick back up again, strong return on equity, have an actual earnings uh, profile, don't be a zombie company or a non profitable right. company. And I think that's a lesson being taught well, in the last few weeks. Well, Lizanne, I do have one last question there. What about this low volatility factor? I see a lot of investors, you know, moving into low vol as sort of a defensive way of approaching the equity market here. How do those sectors screen from a low vol perspective? So it, it's a factor that has done well when the other quality factors have been doing well. But when you get these moves, shifts in expectations for either Fed policy or the economy, and you see it reflected in yield, right. you can go through short periods where you get higher volatility, higher variability as factors that do well. 
I think those you, you probably want to fade those lower quality factors. And I think low volatility, maybe not as important as it was last year, but I still think it's in the basket yeah. of quality oriented factors. Lizanne, to your iconic work, how for our listeners, our viewers on YouTube, how do you avoid a Boeing? How do you avoid a Disney? How do you avoid blue chip stocks that blow up? Well, don't have a heck of a lot of your portfolio invested in any one name or even group of names. Uh, so I think that that's one of the, the messages that come from things like the MAG-7. There's nothing wrong. There's a reason why those stocks have done well, because they check the boxes on so many of those quality factors. But be mindful of volatility and portfolio-based rebalancing. You know, a lot of investors right. do the rebalancing based on the calendar. They might do it once a year, at best once a quarter. But our message has been, let your portfolio tell you when it's time to rebalance, even at Thank the you. individual stock level, where the moves in your portfolio are going to dictate when you add right. low and trim high. Um, maybe don't focus so much on doing it at the calendar okay. uh, trigger. Stop the show. This is the single most important insight of the day for all of you listening and watching. I can't say enough the importance of moving to a Saunders percentage ownership rebale versus a calendar gimmick invented by marketing people that have never owned a share of uh, Anaconda Copper in their life. <laughs> Lizanna, what percentage is a vanilla statement? Do you rebel? Is it when something gets to 5% of portfolio or is there a Saunders magic number? I, I don't know that there's a magic number for individual investors. Keeping in mind, though, that part of the issue with the MAG-7 and how big they've become as a share of the S&P, recently hitting 30%, is that even institutional managers, whether it's mutual funds or even ETFs, right. have caps on how much they can own. If the S&P, if someone just said, hey, let's create this index and here's what it's going to look like, it wouldn't actually pass muster or securities regulations, not to mention the fact that many fund managers can't hold such a large share of those names. So you can use that as as maybe not an exact guide for what percent becomes too much, but this notion that there are going to be a lot of institutions right. that simply have to trim because of their own guidelines on how much they can own of the, the stock. Just in, in many from, cases, it's 5%. We've got to interrupt, Lizanne, just in from Led Zeppelin News. Robert Plant will tour the United Kingdom with Saving Grace. Look for that, 2000. Uh, 24. Lizanne's I want to see him tour with Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones and uh, Jason Bottom. So that's what go. I'm waiting for. That's what she's waiting for. <laughs> and she will she will be there in the arena when they do that. So I will. Uh, Lizanne Saunders, thank you so much. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.